So here's the thing about promos for live shows. Like you listen to my podcast, kind of vaguely aware that there's a live show, but you're sort of like, oh yeah, when is that happening? You know, when is that going on? Well, I want you to go get a piece of paper and a pencil, and I want you to do this the old-fashioned way. I want you to write down that on August 31st on Zoom at 7 p.m. I am doing a live show with Lati Doe. It's going to be kind of like cabaret slash podcast slash like monologuing a little bit. Alex DeBard's going to be there. She's going to sing that our guest today wrote and I wrote. We didn't write it together. It's two separate songs. One song by Michael Fink, our guest today. One song by me. She's going to sing two songs. And then there's going to be other songs that I'm going to sing. I'm going to play the guitar, you know? So it's a lot like being at a college party with me in that I'm playing the guitar and you can't play the guitar because I'm playing the guitar. Anyway, this, that's not important. The guitar part isn't really that important. We're going to be singing songs. We're going to be talking about stuff. It's going to be great. There's a link in the description so you can get the information and come on out. It's going to be a lot of fun. I hope to see you there. Before we get started, I need to thank a new Patreon patron. Thank you, Wes Kinley, for becoming a patron of the original cast. And you've joined just at the right time because you get the fresh episode of uh, Can't Stop the Music with Robbie Rizell and Robert W. Schneider talking about the Village People musical. And then just in a couple days, you're going to get to be able to listen to uh, Courtney Lane Self, Casey Aaron Clark talking about the original 1997 animated Anastasia which I had never seen and Courtney had never seen and we did it the Broadway on this podcast and now we're doing the movie over there on the bonus podcast we've got other great movies we're halfway through our Star is Born examination with Carrie Ginsburg and Roddy Flynn we've got the the Barbara Streisand coming up there in September we're, we're, we're cruising on that we're going to wrap it up in December i got two movies in between there that you're absolutely going to love that I haven't finalized yet so I don't want to announce it but you should go to patreon.com slash original cast pod just like Wes did and become a patron of the original cast listen to the original cast of the movies maybe go nuts spend five dollars a month and and get this get this show a day early because you're like it's tuesday where's my podcast all right it's 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 not wednesday wait i'm a five dollar patron i can listen to it on tuesday be funny if someone actually had that thought patreon.com slash original cast pod all right here's the show whenever my world falls apart i never lose hope or lose heart whatever the form of the storm that not with you to lean on, darlings, you. Hello and welcome to the Original Cast, a podcast about original cast albums and the people who love them. I'm Patrick Flynn. My guest today describes himself as a music theater writer, and I will describe him in the words of Jason Robert Brown as someone who you may not know, but you will. It's Michael Fink, everybody. Hello, thank you for having me. Thank you for being had. I should say, uh, I came to know your work as a writer because of the uh, the effervescent Robbie Rizal and his solo album, uh, songs from inside my locker to which you wrote a custom piece of music an original song for that uh recording hell's kitchen yeah uh, which is a, a hilarious song it sounds like it and i will definitely uh, i'm going to talk to you about the process of writing that bespoke song for robbie but much to robbie's dismay we're not here to talk about him we're here to talk about elegies a song cycle and i am And I'm watching it all. Yes, I'm watching it all. Oh, and I am there in music. I am there in sky. I don't know why this thing did happen, but this much is clear. Any time or Elegies, yes. Elegies, a Bill Finn uh, song cycle. So how did Elegies come into your life? Uh, so when I was in high school, uh, growing up in sunny Boca Raton, Florida, uh, <laughs> I uh, would, you know, go to uh, Barnes & Noble or Borders or um, 
any one of those stores where they had a section of the store dedicated to you know, soundtracks and they would all be labeled soundtracks like musicals and movies and TV theme songs. There's always one section. And I um, started getting a habit of buying cast recordings for shows I knew nothing about. Uh, and I, you know, I, I would obviously like look at the back and see, was there a name I recognize or something about it that would make me want to buy it or, or bring it home, you know, uh, and, and elegies was one of them. And sure enough, it was one of those, recordings that really stuck um you know especially when i was in high school well and it seems i think song cycles are uniquely suited for that kind of repeat listening because you can really hop in anywhere each song is its own its own little bit uh and and but unlike a lot of song cycles especially i mean i brought up jrb so i'll just i'll just harp on him for a while um (laughs) unlike songs for a new world which does feel like a collection of songs that are on a theme, but are disparate. You're clearly written for disparate projects and then brought together. This feels like what you want a song cycle to be, which are disparate songs, but are all connected on a theme and all feel like one large piece of music. It, it, it is a, a connected experience, which we should probably, <laughs> just to warn people, summarize them exactly what it's about. So could you summarize the lack of plot in in elegies the song sure so uh elegies is the song cycle by mr william finn uh and they are they are elegies they are uh songs that are uh odes to people in his life people that he knew or people around him who have passed away uh you know and and these are people who you know they're real people uh and they're you know a a handful of number of folks uh in his life who passed away from aids uh his mother plays a prominent role uh in in the show and and also uh you know this show came out a, a couple years after 9-11 and so 9-11 becomes a prominent thing in the show as well and and that's pretty much the the gist of it and it's basically mm-hmm. uh you can you can call it a celebration of life um you know i sort of for me it's like this um question of uh how do we keep going when knowing others don't you know mm-hmm. um and i think that's i mean i think that one of the last lines in the show is the ending is not the story yes. so then so then what is the story so i don't know well, i'm well, rambling now about no but that's what, a good that's is. a good point and i don't want to uh, that is something that really struck me um is that line and i do want to get to that line because i think it's important it also ties in um, i think interestingly into a show you wrote and i want to i'm going to tease that out there cuz we'll come back to that at the end but oh wow I did also want to bring up that um, they are elegies for people who have died, but they're all real people. Mm-hmm. Like, unlike, and people named, it's not like he wrote a show, a song called Joe, and we all just know it's about Joe Papp. The song is called Joe Papp. You know, it's not like he wrote a song yeah. about Jack and that it, we're, we just are all supposed to know it's Jack Eric Williams. It's Jack Eric Williams. And it's really, I mean, his childhood address is in this thing, which yes. I looked up and is a real address. Like it's a real house. I would That's wonder amazing. what it's like to live at 14 Dwight Avenue in Natick, Massachusetts. But it's like, it's a real tiny little house on the street in Natick. And it, it is so in that Bill Finn way, it's like even because this is a hallmark of his work, I think, is 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 the optimism of of all of his work, e- even when it like even the most the saddest parts of, of Falsetto Land are the, the darkest parts of a new brain. Um, and this whole show, which is about death, is is a real celebration. It is it is all about great memories of these people of like Mark's all male Thanksgiving, of course, and then Mark comes back later and we learn what happened to Mark, you know, really. And it's all like a lot of these people died of AIDS and it's all very, very sad, but it really feels like a genuine reflection. A song written mm-hmm. by an older man looking back on a life of friends who have died and saying, well, I could cry about it, you know, or I could just, what, what did it mean? What was it? What was the whole, what was the bit of it? And uh, yeah, so it, it's really shocking to me in that very like specific Bill Finn way, how these are all real people. These are specific details. And I don't know if everybody was thrilled about how they were represented in this show, but that's a whole other thing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would be honored to have Bill Finn write a song about me. Uh, <laughs> well, there's one song, Is it? it's in the barrel of Jack Eric Williams. It is where they're at, his Jack Williams's funeral and somebody gets up and says something negative about his music. And like, he yeah. quotes him 
I mean, obviously the man who said it said it in a public place. Like it wasn't like it was a private correspondence, but even so he like calls him out in this. Yeah, it was a Quentin Crisp was uh, was like making fun of Jack Eric Williams's music at his funeral, funeral. (laughs) which is wild. End of the service. I was talking to Quentin Crisp and he said, I never understood his music. There were gasps in the crowd. People fainted on the floor. I never understood why the melodies went where they went. It's all a crime. It's gone so wrong. But I never understood his songs. So what were the songs? I mean, obviously, if you listen to this in high school, what were the songs that drew, like, drew you in? What was it that like grabbed you about this, about this show? Well, you know, I, I, I in high school, I wasn't really familiar with song cycles. We had, mm. you know, we had, uh, you know, songs for a new world was the thing and it had right. been a thing for a while, you know, mm-hmm. it was the thing. And then like, I hadn't discovered the, you know, the closer than ever's of the world and, and all, all, all that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, by the time I realized each, while listening to it, each song was its own story, mm. thought, oh, cool. So it's like, you know, like a, I don't know, like a magazine or, you know, just re- go to the next article. Yeah, book of short and stories, yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And by the time we get, you get to Joe Papp, um, which is like the fifth song on on the recording, it is such an electrifying song uh, that is equal parts nonsense and also um, <laughs> just... Uh, like putting someone on a pedestal at the same time. Like, mm-hmm. I don't understand why these men are just singing the word Joe a trillion times over and over and over again on top of each other. But I do know that this guy was important. And now who else is important? I never understood what Joe was saying to me. He'd quote Shakespeare and I'd simply nod. Is this how the prophet? Is this how the prophet felt in the presence? Is this how the prophet felt in the presence of God? Joe Pat never took that, even from Robert Moses. Joe saw a theater in Central Park. And Moses builds what Joe proposes. Moses builds an outdoor theater. Moses thinks it's pork, but it lights up New York. It lights up New York. So that song was sort of a big in um, as well. And another thing too is that, you know, in, in Florida we had uh, thespian competitions and, and, and a dear friend of mine won all the awards in the world for singing My Dogs. Um, really? Yes. Uh, and he, he's this killer singer songwriter in LA now, and he's amazing. Uh, and, and he, he like swept Florida high school theater people. He took them by storm with this performance <laughs> with of My, my dogs. dogs. Oh, my dog. Playfully, he'd misbehave. He was young and strong and brave. And one day, he died. My dog. Crying, my dog. He's lying at the vets. That's what comes of loving pets. I so, you know, that that helped. You know, that was another song that ended up having a lasting impression because of him. But you know, I, I it's think probably the most accessible songs. song in the show. I don't. Would you agree with that? That's a for sure. I yeah. mean, it's it's a singular story song that does not reflect some of the songs in elegies call back to other songs that yes. you know happened earlier. My dogs is a singular moment mm-hmm. that is deliberately really funny. And what's so yeah. amazing about it too is you know, and now being older and hopefully wiser, how the the show is structured. You know, the song before it is Anytime, which is basically a song that was written for someone who is dying and it was to be yeah. played at their funeral. The next song is My Dogs and it starts off in this somber tone and then eventually the lyric changes to, and then I gave my dog liquor. Right. And, and then you can tell this is a little kid character and it's, 
Yeah. It's almost this anomaly of a song, but it's like Bill Finn knew at this moment in the show. Yeah, we need, we to, need go. to breathe. We need mm-hmm. to laugh. We need to go and, like, yeah. Yeah. And he sticks in that. Well, it also, it kind of, it, from that point, because like it, it's a very good point. One of the, the best things about this, this show is how it's balanced because we do go up and down. I mean, we start with the looking up quintet, which has a, a very specific mood. It is. It, it kind of makes you, maybe makes you worried a little bit that it's 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 light and you feel like oh god this is going to be a very like somber kind of show and then we immediately cut into Mr. Troy and Madam G which is I think the only song in the show in which we don't know if they, I mean the characters obviously die at some point you know people die but like they they don't, they just leave like Mr. Troy and Madam G just disappear <laughs> yeah the last line of the song is one day they were gone right. we don't know and I hope they're better off and that's like. Okay, like, there you go. Um, but it does hop back and forth a little bit between funny and sad and serious and somber. But then once we get to Anytime I'm There, that is a, that is a, and Monica and Mark kind of leads into that too. It is a very, like, much more heavy tune. And then we build back up again for, like, my dogs in Venice and Natick, Massachusetts, until we get to the first the death of his mother with When the Earth Stopped Turning and then 9-11 with Goodbye. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the man knows what he's, what he's doing he knows how to structure a show and you know he'd obviously written enough of them by that point but it is it's not to be overlooked because i feel with song cycles it's easy to overlook that it's easy to sort of go Mm -hmm. oh it's just a collection of songs like whatever and say no a song cycle is a very specific style of music that predates the musical you know predates the 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 whole the generally accepted you know western musical comedy in terms of a form like a song cycle is a thing and often it can be disrespected i think it's, it's not an album it's a it's a it's a different it's a presentation of a theme is what it should be and this this certainly is yeah i mean i think too often song cycles are um assumed to be equivocated with a review or mm-hmm. it's just a, it's it's a, it's like a fancy code for concert and i think right. a lot of musical theater writers um i don't know if that's the case anymore but for a, a while, it was uh, writers leaning on the term song cycle as a way just to throw a bunch of their songs together and do a show. And mm-hmm. I am so guilty of that. When I when I left uh, college, I did my song cycle like five months after I graduated. And my, and my my dear friend Nathan Tyson came to see it. And he literally said afterwards, I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> like and basically being like, what what how what did they all that? connect? And I was like, right. you know, kind of right. They did, and I was cheating. okay. Yeah, right. You know, and then but it's still it should be treated like a theatrical experience with like a start to a finish. You know, each beat leads to the next. It can't just be this haphazard thrown together show of songs. And and the thing about elegies that is so beautiful is that it is it is this script each beat is connected to the one before and the one after it and there are characters i mean there are discrete characters i mean his mother being one played by betty buckley and mm-hmm. you know we have a, you know young carolee carmelo and a young christian borrell and we have like uh, this cast of michael rupert who michael rupert who will always be falsettos to me that's every time i hear him saying i hear march of the falsettos and falsetto land that's the the sound that comes through my head so oh, he's yeah. very bill finn to me his voice um but so it, yeah it is i mean these are a-level performers this is uh some of them on the rise some of them at the peak of their you know powers and it is it is presented with the seriousness that it demands of a of a show. You know, it is demanding like, no, this is just as important as any other you know piece that you're going to experience. And you've kind of, I guess, put your money where your mouth is on this because you wrote a song cycle. Uh, I did other people's relationships. Yeah, yes, I did. And I would say about two thirds of the songs really did connect in that show. Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's only 70 minutes uh, or eight minutes, then it's not enough. Uh, <laughs> you know, you need you need the whole thing to fly. I, I booked a, a slot at Don't Tell Mama with no songs. And they said, great, can you do this day in like two months? And I said, or in, I think it was like one month. And I was like, sure. So I wrote all the songs really, really fast, got a bunch of friends to do it. And, uh, and uh, you know, looking at all the songs that were there and one of the songs was called Other People's Relationships. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, that's kind of funny because um, uh, too often we're, we, we judge other people's experiences, you know, without mm-hmm. really knowing what's going on. And I would say out of the like 14 songs that were in it, eight of them could have passed 
as a show, as a song in a show called Other People's Relationships. Mm-hmm. The others don't, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever choose to revisit that song cycle, uh, changes, changes will, will be, be made. made. <laughs> exactly. I got you. That's one of the beauties of Elegies is the fact that you have these absolutely insane events happening. I mean, AIDS is something that people still, I, I still struggle with understanding a what it was like then but also what it's like now it's still mm-hmm. a real huge issue yeah. and um and and this being in high school and hearing these songs hearing you know the the Mo- monica and mark mm-hmm. very viscerally talk about what it's like to be in the hospital and what it's like to to have friends who are going through that or to be someone going through that and you know well, uh, and to find out i mean that song is shocking like that song is absolutely shocking when, and it's that great thing. It's something I really like that you can do in musicals. You can do in songs that you really, and you can do in theater that you really can't do in film, which is, is you can put the audience in a time and place and not tell them where they are until they're three quarters of the way into it. And when they're like, we're in the hospital, we're waiting for him to get out. You kind of have a sense that he's got AIDS and he's sick and like, he's not going to get better. But what you don't know is that the characters don't know what AIDS is. Like, that's where we are. We are so early in this process that they are completely caught off guard by the, like, and you suddenly realize how far ahead of those characters you are. And it's, it takes you off your guard in a serious yeah. way. You're just like, oh my gosh, like, they're, like, this is the moment that their lives really change. But before we were outside the door, my doctor Stubbsy Forster asked what we were waiting for. And I said, we're waiting for our friend. We are waiting for our friend to get better. So he pulled Mark's chart and bless his heart, Stubbsy sat down to explain. He explained that Mark had AIDS. He explained that AIDS was then fatal, something we did not know at the time. So as a group, we began to swoon. He massaged our shoulder blades. He said Mark would die that afternoon. He suggested that we see him soon, very soon. Every Thanksgiving, Mark, made his all-male Thanksgiving dinner where men cook the turkey and men made the cranberries and also it's sort of musical theater writing 101 a little bit like where's mm-hmm. the change where's the change in the song and with the song like Monica and Mark you know you think you're following Mark's story but really you're 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 following Monica's by the right. time you get to the end or another one is uh the song Passover um <laughs> that Carly Camello just shreds into oh, it's absolutely. like it's like the rock star <laughs> version of a of a Bill Flynn per- a Bill, Bill Finn performance uh but at the end of the song it's no longer this you know uh light thing about what passover was like they're saying and then you know my family passed over and you're like oh that's what the song's about you just changed it and and Mm -hmm. i think when it comes to a show that's dealing with death you know there's no better opportunity to do that musical theater change in the song about what the song's about um or my favorite song the 14 dwight avenating massachusetts Mm -hmm. you know the fact that you don't know uh, for, for those who don't know the show, that song is uh, with uh, Bill Finn's mother. It's a real place. Uh, so in a real, go to a real, real place. <laughs> uh, and and it, it's sort of like this, um, you know, story of you know one last look around the neighborhood type of type of situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But then halfway through the song, um, and I do have a visceral memory of listening to the song for the first time in my car. Um, halfway through the song she does mention about how, you know, she has her oxygen tank with her yeah. while she's looking around. You don't know that at the beginning, at least I don't think. And then all of a sudden, Christian Borle comes into the song halfway through as her son experiencing this with her, um, you know, and, and it becomes this huge catharsis. And mm-hmm. yet it's also, again, it, it's, a, it's that big musical theater change that happens and it's very blunt and mm-hmm. super satisfying. And it ends again, like... I don't want to keep harping on this because like you'll, you'll it'll feel like I'm overstating it, but I can't overstate the fact that a song that could so easily end on a kind of somber down note ends on a grateful one. 
it is a genuine reflection of like, I'm so happy we got to live at 14 Dwight Ave, Natick, Massachusetts. It's this sense of like, her life is coming to an end. And she's, mm-hmm. you know, she says all the things that you're, you always have a character say when their life's coming to an end. I don't have enough time. I didn't have enough time. Like, it's a shame. I could, you know, stuff like that. But her, fin- her final thought in that moment is, no, it was good. It was good. We did good. It was a good life. Like, this, this was good. This was a good thing that we did. And it's beautiful and sets you up, opens you up like a flower so that he can squash you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> when the earth stops turning. <laughs> He's so good at that. It's, really it's sort is. of like, He's so and it's good. deliberate. I oh, mean, God, yeah. even, even in, you know, even within the songs, you know, with Mr. Choi and Madam G, there, you know, it's this mm-hmm. eccentric sounding song in the beginning. Um, and then, uh, at one point, the melody gets super chromatic, and then all of a sudden, it goes into this lush looking in the window, and all of a sudden, that lush moment is all the more satisfying because you just came out of this really chromatic, odd musical phrase. What happened to these wonderful friends? In twenty years, I never got a letter. I hope their lives got infinitely better, and I wanted to explain. How their friendship kept me sane. Looking in the window of this empty house, babe. I see their reflections in my face. The biggest example I think that most people will know is in Spelling Bee, there's a reason the I Love You song breaks so many people's hearts. It's because you've been watching people go nuts for a long time in the show. And the fact that he's saying, now we're going to stop. And now we're going to remind you that these are actual kids. Right. With parents, mm-hmm. with with uh, kids with fears and kids who are missing things in their lives, and you know he sets you up for that, um, you know that that moment, and then that happens, like, you know, like what you just said at, after fourteen Dwight Ave. He can kind of do it in the other direction too. I really I love in, I think it's in Act One of of Falsetto, so it's in March of the Falsettos when um, when Jason uh, goes to Mendel. And Mendel, who is in love with Jason's mother, is like trying to jazz him up. And it has in it the catchiest phrase in all of falsettos, which is the, why don't you feel all right for the rest of your life? Why don't that whole section? And you go, oh, he can write catchy, like boppy songs. So, like, this is part of the thing. Why isn't he doing that? Well, he's not doing that because in that moment, Mendel is being very false. Like, Mendel is lying. And giving Jason terrible advice. And so it's, it's encaptured in this extremely catchy piece of music to make it feel canned, to make it feel generic. And it's like, God, that's intelligent writing. And that's absolutely brilliant. Yeah. I, so one, <laughs> one thing about my belief as a, as a, as a, as a writer of musicals mm-hmm. is, you know, you know, it's okay to sound ugly and sure. it's okay to sound crunchy. And I'm not just talking like cool dissonance. I mean, actually sounding ugly in your music. And I think we we tend to believe that if it doesn't sound pretty or beautiful or exciting or thrilling or sexy, then it's bad or it's wrong. And I, uh, I, I, I can't stand that because I love when there is a moment of deliberate... Um, like musical chaos and you know mm-hmm. of just awkward melodies and awkward sounds i mean there's a couple moments on the you know in elegies where if you were listening to it earbuds you'd have to like take it out for a sec it's mm-hmm. like what's that one moment um where christian borrell i think it's it's in the 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 peggy uh peggy hewitt song where you know he, uh, he sings that line that Misty Del Giorno sings, isn't my girl gorgeous? Oh, yes. But he like roars into he, the yeah, microphone. Yeah. And you oh, have to yeah. like, but it's also so funny. And mm-hmm. just to have the courage of being able to say, hey, we're not going to sound pretty right now. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, because it's about the piece. 
Like mm-hmm. it's not about it's not about the song. It's not about the phrase. It's not about the moment. It's about the show. Like everything you're writing in a musical is about the show. And so just like you wouldn't have like if you're just if you're writing scripts you don't have like every scene isn't beautiful and pretty and happy and shiny every single song moment shouldn't be beautiful and happy and pretty and, and shiny but i think that what what my my point being about the march of the falsettos moment is that like i feel that it's not that he's intentionally writing weird or awkward that wasn't kind of a, a better way to phrase it but it's like he has a way he writes and it's not it's a very specific way he writes and it's 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 neat to see that like he has that ear for melody and tunefulness and like, wow. And he's, it's not that he's running away from it. He's like, he knows when to use it. He knows like the show he wants mm-hmm. to write and he knows when to turn on this little element here. Because like even songs in, uh, he, you know, they're like unlikely lovers and things that are beautiful pieces of, of melody. But a, a great contrast between like what you're, t- like to agree with what you're saying and kind of amplify it a little bit. Another moment that I always think about in, um, in falsettos is the something something bad is happening uh in in falsetto land as this sort of ominous like piece of music and how he uses the rhythm to make it feel ominous instead of like a minor key or any you know like that kind of thing he keeps it in this kind of way to contrast it with another show i listened to recently what we did on this podcast which was wicked which contains the song something bad and is a much more, you know, no shade on Wicked or Steven Schwartz, but it's a much more direct audience, like, listen, something, like, the music tells you, the lyrics tell you, the characters telling you, something <laughs> ominous is coming and it's happening and it's a thing. <laughs> and in in Elegies and in Falsettos and uh, most of his work, you get, there's an undercurrent of a problem. You know, it's a, they're, they're different shows, obviously, blah, blah, blah. And yes, I know, like, in Stephen Sondheim and Sweeney Todd does a much more direct thing because that's the piece and yada, yada. Okay, everybody calm down the the there's a there's an appreciation i have for the the subtlety at play the ability to like move me emotionally around and i don't feel manipulated and i don't feel led but i do feel safe i'm like i'm this is going somewhere and i'm on i'm totally in the the ride you you're entertaining me intellectually and emotionally and so when you beat the crap out of me (laughs) i (laughs) i'm prepared i am ready for it i have been like i'm rise and fall and you've given me enough comedy to know that you're going to make me feel okay when this is over. I'm not going to be like just a sobbing puddle on the floor, you know, yeah. and you're going to walk out of the room. It, it's much more like, no, I'm, I'm going to take you to some dark places, but I'm going to take you to some fun places. And we're going to end on a note of something, like something hopeful, something, you know, up. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel that I feel that way with him and everything he does like this is all going to end okay we're not going to we're going to go to some dark places we're all going to end yeah. up in this spot yeah you'll be all right and he even tells you in the title like this is mm-hmm. this is about dead people yes you know oh he's very very uh, direct yes, yes you know uh which is amazing although i do wonder what what it would have been like to have been in the audience for one of the nine performances that happened of of elegies and also for people listening who don't know the show and mm-hmm. uh i don't have a pulse on what's obscure and what's not i thought i did but then someone will tell me of an of a show i've never heard of and then someone will be like what's the book of mormon so like i don't know oh, what's yeah, obscure right. and what's not but the uh elegies only lasted nine performances but it was only scheduled for a month right and it only played on sundays and mondays right because uh, it was it was at Lincoln Center. It was on another show set. They just right. performed it on another on another set. And I, you know, I was when I listened to the to the show again recently. I, I started wondering what would, what it would have been like for the audience at the time to have been in the room during the last song, where it is rather explicitly about nine eleven, and there was this conversation, uh, you know, for years about when do we when do we make jokes about this thing that happened? When do we talk about it? When do we make movies about it? I remember when when United 93 came out in movie theaters, it was a big deal because it was the first major, one of the first major 9-11 works of art. Um, You know, I know there was the guys with Sigourney Weaver, but that, that was one of the bigger ones. And so to have been in the room in New York like a year and a half, I yeah, think. Yeah, no, this is very soon. Very is, soon. Very soon. What that must have been, I don't know. I well, I, no think, I, I think he plays on that exactly right. Because, like, I mean, United 93, I believe, was 2006. It also came out at the same time as World Trade Center, Oliver Stone's much less 
with Nicolas oh, yeah. Cage, his much, much, much less artful uh, meditation. And, um, oh yeah. Uh, yeah, totally different movies. And, um, it was, the, the, but when we say it's about 9 11, it's, it's about 9 11. You know what it reminded me of? And this is kind of an unfair comparison, but it reminded me a lot of Ordinary Days and mm-hmm. the, and I'll be here. I mean, which is a song about 9 11 as well. And spoiler alert, if you don't know Ordinary Days, you, Adam's been on the podcast, gang. You should, you should know Ordinary Days. <laughs> and, um, but he, it, it is a, it, it uses, it uses the imagery. It doesn't beat you over the head with it. Like the song mm-hmm. is called Boom, song's called Boom Boom. And then the song, then the second song is called Looking Up. And it is like, I get it. I'm in New York. And if you're talking about looking up, like that's what I'm like. That's what you're looking at. You know, I know what they're talking about. You don't have to go any deeper than that. The lyrics sit right on the surface. You mm-hmm. know, it never plums in. It never digs into the like literalness of the moment. It really just it 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 relies on your own the fact that it's 18 months later. You remember. You know. You were there. I don't have to like hit you over the head with it. I'm just going to meditate on this for a little while. It really is that it's a meditation in the best sense of the word. It's not like Mm -hmm. it is a real, just like we all know this is about nine 11. So just hang in for a minute and let's like live in that space for a second and eulogize those people or elegize those people and elegize that experience in a respectful and simple way um, that I think is, ends up being quite beautiful and timeless because of its, of its reach. It's that uh, common question of, you know, when do we talk about this and how do we talk about this? And also it's just, is it, isn't it worse to just pretend just to not acknowledge it, you know? So it's sort of this thing of this responsibility of, you know, I, I, I should write about this thing. I want to write about this thing. It may not be something that people sign up for, but I'm, I'm going to be conscious of, of that. You know, it's, it's like when people talk about Come From Away as that 9-11 musical. And when I saw it, I, I was like, this isn't a 9-11. Yeah, this a is nine, like a... It's, it's a 9-12 musical. It's I mean, a 9-12. <laughs> yeah. It's, which is, yeah, it's, it's the next day. It's not the thing. It's what, it's the after. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's the experience around it. Yeah, it's just very, very different. And I don't know. Um, I guess I'm rambling on right now. No, I, I don't think you are. I, I think it's important to sort of drill down on, because you also reminded me of the the two things. One being the fact that like in the middle of this pandemic, if I, if I hear another, you know, I've done a few of these like quarantine play competitions and they've been very interesting. But like, if I hear another play about like living in the quarantine while I'm living in the quarantine, I'm going to like slam my head into the wall. I don't want to talk about this right now. I'm in the middle of it. You know, and like, I don't, I, some of them have been interesting. Some of them have an interesting take or twist. Or I'm not saying there's there's not a way to do it, but you know, inside of it is too soon. So <laughs> that that certainly feels true to me. That reminds me, I have, I have a literary manager friend who who I think it was like in in early 2017 wrote online, "Dear all playwrights, stop sending us your Trump plays. Like, oh God, please yes. just stop doing it. We 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 have so many. We don't, and and, and we're probably not going to do them. You know, and and I and it's the same thing with COVID. It's it's like we don't need more. We 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 get it. It ties directly <laughs> into this thing I I've been feeling a lot recently, um, and that's and this is the like was when you said like the conversation about when is too soon to joke about it, is the idea of like that seems to be like I think it's too soon to talk about it whether or not it's too soon. Like, I feel like we are in an age of instant analysis before anything has happened. Before any, like, because the only true test of any piece of art, be it a a piece of music theater, a film, or a joke, is time. Does Mm -hmm. it last? Does it resonate? Does it hold? And things get pulled apart for every little tiny, you know, listicles and think pieces abound on every little teeny little thing until is and try to put it in some kind of historical absolute amber context. And like, it's not intermission yet. So why don't we just all calm down? <laughs> let the thing, let the thing finish and then see how we feel with it. And I understand, as I've said before, it's a funny thing for a guy who has a podcast about analyzing music theater albums to talk about, but I really do like, like, let's just hang out, man. Let's just <laughs> relax for a second and, and talk about how we feel. But, like, don't put any hard, like, don't cast it in, in stone. 
like, like we can, the, the conversation can progress. It can be building, it can be ongoing. And there's always a way to talk about something while it's happening, right after it happened, and then 10 years after it happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also think that people are trying to get ahead of the moment. People are trying mm-hmm. to predict what is it that people are going to want to talk about um, and be first in six months. Yeah, like I want to, you know, I'm going to write this. I'm going to write the 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 COVID, the hor- the murder hornets play. I'm going to write the, you know, the <laughs> I don't know. Well, there's so many crazy things that things that's been happening. Uh, you know, it's it's. <laughs> It's so how, unnecessary. How does one keep track, Michael? How does one keep track? <laughs> I don't know. And the answer is not social media. Well, God, no. Oh, my but goodness. You and I are not the first person to say that, but we will continue yeah. to because it is important. Yes, it is. It, uh, yeah. I mean, and I don't want to, I don't want this to be mistaken as a complaint about people being rightly called on the carpet for doing and saying some terrible things. And that kind of, an, that's not what I'm talking about. That is a, a cultural discourse of of import and and uh, and necessary and good that that is happening. It's more the sort of endless think piece on on what something means culturally forever. You know, not not just like right now. <laughs> and it's it they're they're two very very different things. It's the ultimate. You know, this tweet didn't age well situation. Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think this play didn't age well because all of a sudden this thing that you wanted to talk about that conversation has been had because the story's changed. The story has shifted. One of the reasons I was so glad you picked the show was because this is a great show to listen to right now. I think because it is about if you, if you, the, I think people who find death to be, I was about to say finite, but it is finite. But like, find it to be some, a subject to be avoided or a subject to be like, oh, I can't talk about it. Like, it makes me so sad. It makes me so depressed. Give this show a shot because it's dealing with an existential issue that we all have, but in a very joyful and celebrate. I mean, there's a song in it called Infinite Joy, for crying out loud. Like, it's, it's, about, it's about approaching the subject with, with optimism. And if you can approach death with optimism, you can approach anything with optimism. So how do you... You know, there's a time for sorrow and there's a time to reap and a time to sow. And gosh, didn't Pete Seeger say that? But uh, there, there's a t- don't don't give in to hopelessness. Don't give in that leads to the dark side of the force. You know, like get, don't don't give up, please. <laughs> yeah, I. Uh, it's so funny when you when you uh, asked about musicals that had an impact on me when I was younger that still resonate today. I had listened to Elegies in, in a while, but uh, my partner and I, we've been doing what I think a lot of people have been doing is we've been in quarantine, we've been showing each other movies and TV mm-hmm. shows we think the other one would like. And and he recently we put on and the band plays on, mm. um, which I had never seen before. Oh my and gosh, then it, it's so good. It, unbelievable. Mm, it's so, so good. good. Um, Such a great movie. What an education. And oh, um man. and so then after it made me think of Mark's all male Thanksgiving, mm, this mm-hmm. this this lawyer for for gay rights and for, for gay people who um, you know, was fighting the fight and so i put it on and i hadn't listened to it in years and then i thought oh oh, let me put on the show again the next day i just sat the next morning i I listened to the whole thing start to finish and just felt all the feelings one could feel and it was so cathartic and was amazed with how much of the show still uh feels new in a Mm -hmm. sense and feels i I don't want to use the word radical i think that word gets thrown around a whole lot, but um, feels kind of daring to just, you know, face certain things head on um, in, a, in a hopeful, optimistic way, even when it seems like everything is over and everything's at a loss. So that's a good transition Great. to what we talked about a little bit at the beginning, which is the, the lyric that you mentioned that is the last line of the show, which is the ending is not the story. And it reminded me um, about uh, another show you wrote, which I've only heard one song from, um, 
but I am fascinated by the fact that you wrote uh, Reporting Live, which is a musical based on a real, a true event that I was aware of. And I had a real, I'll never forget the day I told my dad that Pacific Overtures was a show, like just explain to him that there was a musical about Admiral Perry in Japan and he wrote, they wrote a musical about that. <laughs> and so how did you, uh, quick description <laughs> for folks. Um, actually, I'll let you do it because it's a musical about Christine Chubbuck, which if you know who she is, instantly tells you, oh my gosh. But can you talk to me a little bit, just a quick summary of, of Reporting Live. Absolutely. Um, so Reporting Live is uh, a biographical fantasy. Roll with mm-hmm. me on this. It sure. is. Uh, it tells the true story of a woman named Christine Chubbuck, who is a TV uh, re- reporter. She, she was a journalist in the 70s who took her life live on the air. Incredibly graphic and political way. Um, and so this the reporting live tells her story, but also imagines her afterlife. And so you follow both stories at the same time, pretty much. And yes, so I think that at the heart of that, as I've read in the summary, and obviously I've heard the song that you have on your website and also on uh, your YouTube sample of Hold Me Closer, um, it is a a show, though, it seems to me that sort of is the embodiment of that line, that the ending is not the story. Um, Because the ending of of this woman's life is her story. That's why you know who she is, if you know who she is, is, is how she died. And, but that is not who she is. That is just one thing that happened in her life. It was the last thing, but it was just one thing. It was one of many, many other things. And if you dig down into her story, I think I saw a special on her. I'm not sure why I knew who she was, Uh, but like uh, something I saw on her that was, it was a little sensationalized in my memory. It was like a nineties A and E special or something, but yes, I've seen it. Okay, good. There we go. I'm remembering that correctly. So sensationalized, but still on some way, if you're a good hearted person, you can view it as like, man, this woman had a very, very complicated and sad life. Like to be for this, to be her, her, yeah. her story. So what on that Pete, was that book music and lyrics? Is that what you wrote for that? Yeah. Or Okay. What, what, why? I'll just say why. Why? Why, Michael? Why? <laughs> I mean, a, a few of the things, a few of the things you just said, actually. So first of all, when I, um, uh, I wrote it when I was in college and mm-hmm. um, did it, we did a full production of it. Um, and the reason why I, I wrote it was, first of all, I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of the story when I came across it on Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. I just thought, mm-hmm. how are there not 12 movies about this giving a bunch of famous actresses Oscars for it? You know, I don't get mm-hmm. it. Um, and then the other thing was the question of what would, what would Christine have thought about her death after she had done it? Like, how did she think of it? Mm-hmm. Did she, would she have regretted it? Did she think it was successful? It was, um, it was a political statement. I think I remember it verbatim. Her last, the last thing she ever said was in keeping with channel 40's policy of giving you the latest in blood and guts and in living color. I'm now presenting to you another first and attempted suicide. Um, and, and just for, just so listeners know the, the camera cut visual cut out. So people at home didn't see it, but the audio didn't. Right. So then like camera cut right away when a gun was pulled out. And so it was this, it's this harrowing, horrible moment of this very political statement and I just wondered, what did she think about this? Like, you know, was this successful? Was this worth it? You know, do we... And then also the inescapable question of, how do you know that that's the end for you? How do you know mm-hmm. that you're, you know, yeah. you're, you're, pu- you're, you're uh, pulling the curtain? It really ties into this idea of th- that Bill Finn brings up to me, that the end of the story is not the story. And that is really the running theme in this show of all these songs of, and an important one, I think to put around um, 9-11 specifically, which I think for a lot of people felt like an end, but here we are 20 years later and there are many people walking around getting jobs right now who don't remember a world or try, I should say, excuse me, they're not getting jobs. They had jobs or they're trying to get jobs. Yeah. Um, who don't know a world without it, who really don't have any other experience than, than that one. I mean, you were 12, I was 21. It's 
seminal, you know, for people who remember the world before and after, but like, and it's important to remember for those who do remember before and after that it, it is not, I mean, to quote a, a less, a less artful song. I don't believe this lyric just popped into my head, but uh, every new beginning comes from some other beginnings end. Oh God, that's right. He quoted semi-sonics <laughs> closing time, folks. Wow. Yes. Oh man, that's a, oh wow. Look at that. Um, I love it. <laughs> these are the words floating in my head. Um, but it, it's, it, but it's true. It, it's like the, there is no beginning. There is no, I get a sense of this show, not of cyclicalness necessarily, but of, there is no beginning. There is no end. There is only what's happening. There's the continuous story. And there's like the, the common thread in this is Bill Finn. He's literally mentioned by name. He wrote his own name into this show. <laughs> yeah. Just in uh, case you're not, you're not, you're not sure what this show's about. And it also shows that there's an, you know, in, for every tragedy or traumatic event, there's the other side of it. There's what happens after it, you know, mm -hmm. and what does that look like? It's something that I keep, wanting to tell everyone right now, we don't know what the other side of what we're living through looks like. We don't know. Mm -hmm. We're all going to be poking our heads up for air to see, okay, who has fled New York? You know, who has moved back in with their parents? What stores are open? What restaurants are open? Oh, uh, what job am I going to get? We don't know. And, and there's terror in that. There's also excitement and there's danger and there's joy and but the fact of the matter is the one thing we do know is there will be another, the other side to this mm -hmm. when I, and, and I, I don't mean side as in perspective. I mean, literally the, uh, the next chapter, you know? Right. And, and that's what the show I think does so exquisitely because for a lot of the characters in elegies, this show is the next <laughs> chapter, Sure. you know, he resurrects people. Mm -hmm. uh, after they had passed and and shares them with the world yeah and celebrates them celebrates celebrate except for joe pap <laughs> celebrates their their ordinariness you know he he talks about mark's film productions and he talks about the fact that he sort of discovered steve buscemi and isn't that interesting and blah blah, blah. but what he really talks about is his thanksgiving dinner like just his very his all-male thanksgiving as he says yes. and um and just the the simple act of that, you know, this thing that we all, as Americans, all of us have Thanksgiving dinners, and we all do, you know, all those sort. And it just feels very calm, plain, and in that way, beautiful, like completely and utterly gorgeous, in how simple and mundane it, a lot of these things are. It, it's really. You know, it's 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 sort of like our town. It's when you celebrate the ordinariness of something, you really show it for what it is. You know, it is mm -hmm. it, it, in all of its beauty. If you can really look at the ordinary parts and go, "God, wasn't that fascinating?" It it's just gorgeous. Yeah, and there's also beauty in the specificity too. Oh, sure. Um, which is you know, I I think specificity leads to universality. Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. And when you experience things, and and even the the hyper-specific imagery in Mr. Choi and Madam G and in um, uh, Venice, you know, the, yeah, I was about the, to say Venice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Venice is a super specific song, but it's, it, it's, it's still that universal feeling of, I just want to be in a place where everything's a work of art, mm -hmm. you know? And everything is a work of art. I mean, that's the ultimate, you know, that becomes the end statement is that it is all, it's all a work of art. It's also all important. You know, it's it's all valid. It all leads somewhere, and it all it all really means something. And and I think that you'd be hard pressed to find a more important, simple, and yet important message. I do want to say before we kind of as we we wind down here a little bit, though, I think it's important to talk about Robbie Rizal. He'll be sad if we don't. But uh, two things that you guys are doing. We'll start with the one that that is is extant, which is Hell's Kitchen. So. <laughs> The way he tells the story, he sat and complained to you about Hell's Kitchen and then he went off and wrote this song. <laughs> and then I went into one of the yum yums. Gotta love that yum yum. I told the hostess I needed a table for four. You better get that table. The hostess told me to wait 
outside That's when she dimmed the lights Told the patrons to hide Because a corpse was at the door And I'm like, what the fuck Am I doing Western old times where It's just my luck That I'm always In Hell's Kitchen Where things like carbs Are kind of seen as dirty I'm legally dead In Hell's Kitchen Where it's technically illegal To be older than, well, 30 I thought I'd spend my final days up on 51st with the vinyl gaze But it's legally dead, and I'm legally dead in Hell's Kitchen You know, he, he, said, he said the joke before, I'm legally dead in Hell's Kitchen mm-hmm. um, you know, that's Which is a great line said. Yeah. It's a great line, and great line. you know, I, and when he said, could this joke be its own song um, I said, sure, why not? I mean, I'm, I'm happy to write any, I'm a firm believer that anything can be a musical. Mm-hmm. I, I love it when the craziest things get like turned into a musical and everyone's like, that won't sing. And I'm like, shut up. You know, you're not writing it. They're, they're, that person's going to make it sing. And so, you know, when, when Robbie approached me and was like, hey, can you, do you want to turn this into a song? I, I just said yes right away. And we, we met up one time just to, just to talk just to talk about Hell's Kitchen, jokes he had in mind already, um, jokes that I was thinking about. And then um, I went up to to write in and a bunch of those jokes, the little lyrics about like leaving blockheads uh, with a toe tag, you know, mm-hmm. like that, that's, a, that's a Robbie joke. Um, there's a, <laughs> there, God, there are other ones. I can't remember all the lyrics. There's so many words in it. Um, but one <laughs> that is kind of funny is I was, I was working in rural Northwestern Kansas like the week before he was, uh, or like a few weeks before he, the show was happening. Mm-hmm. And I was charting this, the song on my little tiny keyboard. I was writing out the sheet music and, and I didn't, you know, from this motel room in Kansas and I wasn't really formatting it well. And so the first version I sent him was 27 pages long. And he, <laughs> he was like, oh, this is a lot of song. And I said, <laughs> I, I, I swear. And then after it was formatted, it was like 20, you know, yeah, but, sure, right. um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it was a great time. Yeah, it's a great song. It's a very funny song. And it, and it is, what I was very impressed with in listening to it is it is very Robbie. It is a song for that, that he should sing. And I mean, obviously anybody can sing it, but it is, it is his sense of humor. It's his sensibility. And of course, since it's centered around a joke of his, that makes perfect sense. But it, it really suits his voice that you could, could write to that. And because uh, you've obviously known Robbie for for a while and brings me to the second thing I wanted to make sure we talk about, which is you you guys have an album that's in yeah. in production stalled at the moment, but on its way here. It um, is stalled, but it's it's going to happen. Delivery date was two months ago, but that's fine. Everything's on hold. Oh, I know. It's and, uh, yeah, that you guys went out and and kick started and it got fully funded and. But so what? So how many? Like, what can you tell me about about the album? What I can tell you is that it is, um, it's a collection of standalone songs. Mm-hmm. Um, although actually, uh, I can tell you a really cool arrangement of "Hold Me Closer" is going to be on it. Oh, cool. um, yeah. Uh, the 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 guy who arranged the album just arranged the song and said, "Don't kill me," but I really like the song and I we should do it and and just listen to. Here's my pitch for it, mm-hmm. and I was like. Great! This is awesome. Let's do it. Great. Um, but it's a, it's gonna it's an it's an album of uh, standalone songs uh, that I uh, have been writing for the past ten years. Some of them are really old. Some of them are written a month before, a week before we started recording. Um, they kind of run the gambit, and it's uh, yeah. So so Robbie is and I have always talked about doing an album together, and we did we did the Kickstarter, and then mm-hmm. I'm working. Uh, we're working with a very good friend of mine, a Swedish arranger uh, named Nils Petter Ankerblom, who is this mind-boggling musical genius with one of the world's coolest resumes, and he'll never tell people about it. He doesn't like people knowing that he's, you know, arranging songs for, you know, 
Ariana Grande and Megan Trainer and Michael Bublé and all these people. And, oh, and okay. oh yeah, it's really funny. You know, they're horn players on the album. Who he was like, oh, you're gonna have some of the same horn players that were on, um, you know, the Jonas Brothers last album, and you know, like his his really fancy Swedish musician friends, sure. um, who are amazing and so cool. And so we we have these collections of song, this collection of songs, and before the shutdown, before everything shut down in February, right. the last. Or maybe it was, I forget it was the beginning of, no, it was the end of February. We recorded the musical, we recorded the tracks, we recorded all the musicians mm-hmm. in Sweden. Uh, and <laughs> yeah, uh, well, it's because his schedule is so crazy. And he um, was kindly collaborating on this. You know, obviously he wants to, and he's a friend. Uh, and, and, but, he, you know, he is, he's a busy man working on a lot of different projects and in tra- trying to schedule when to record. It was sort of like, you know, instead of trying to find that perfect three-day window for you to come to New York, mm-hmm. I'm, we're, we're just going to Sweden. Sure. <laughs> and we'll do it there. Totally. Uh, and so we recorded in Sweden, and then we were getting ready to start prepping for the vocalists, and then things happened. I'm excited to hear it when it, when it, when it comes out, and it will come out. There's no, no question about that. If the backing tracks are down, the album will come out. <laughs> oh, not, yeah. Like, yeah. We've come too far. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's very rare... For, for me to listen to it's a, a several songs that somebody has written from several different shows and several different pieces of the videos I've watched and really keep going and being like, yep, I haven't heard, heard one I didn't, didn't connect with yet. That's super, like, that's very special. And um, Thank you. I, I think that, uh, as I s- said at the beginning, uh, you don't know him, but you will. I 100% believe that to be true. And... Um, I hope that this is a chance for a lot of people to be like, who is this guy? Let's check this out. Well, you can check him out. You can check him out on the internet at uh, Michael Fink Music, that's Fink with an E, dot com. And um, there's great videos there. There's great song samples there. And um, scroll all the way, start with the watch and listen, scroll all the way down, listen to America's Next Top 20 something. Um, I just noticed you don't have Saturday morning cartoons on the samples. Got to find that one too. Um, that's one of the ones Robbie sent me. Oh yeah, <laughs> which is a true story, by the way. It's a true story. <laughs> yes, there's a uh, a true story about a kid who uh, in oh, China. Oh, don't ruin it. Is it a true story? It is a true story. Um, and one of the worst things I ever did was I was doing this concert at the Lincoln Center Library, and someone asked me to set up the song, and I said all I could say is that it's a true story, and I didn't specify that it's not my true story and i just sat there while hundreds of people were watching this song happen thinking what is wrong with this person and who are his parents like what and i like afterwards i had to like clarify like this is that's a good joke though that's a good coming up being like not my story but it is a true okay just Uh, go go to youtube look up me and my cartoon friends michael fink and uh just Yes. No. Okay. I'm going to go listen to it again, knowing it's a true story. <laughs> oh my God. I can send you uh, pictures too of the incident. Like Please do. Rep- reporters oh my God. definitely got some good images of what happened that day, that fateful day. I can't. I'm speechless. I'm absolutely speechless. I was. I love just, writing about true stories of real people, much like Mr. Finn. <laughs> I do want to say, though, I have some, some, uh, some industry scuttlebutt here to let you know that it is very possible because you can't find this album on iTunes right now. It's part of um, Finesworth Alley and um, did like the whole Lost in Boston series and unsung musical series and stuff like that um, that are not available anywhere unless you spend like all the money in the world to get the CDs or you bought them the first time out like I did. And um, but I have uh, inside information that uh, it's going to be uh, re-released soon. Uh, I heard something similar. Heard something similar about that? I did. Thank you so much, Michael. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you um, for having me. And thank you to... for this podcast. Oh, thank well, I'm it's thank, so fun. You're welcome. That's good. <laughs> That's a good nothing else I could say to that, but you're welcome. Um and I said Michael Fink uh, Michaelfinkmusic.com. Is there anywhere else people should to check out what you're doing? Um uh I, I would say, yeah, the the website. You can also yeah, just look me up on, on YouTube if you if you'd like as well. And and there will be an album coming out soon. Um, you know, and that'll be a place for people to go. Uh, as well. We lived at 14 Dwight Ave, Natick, Massachusetts, in a small house on a sloping hill. 
And the friends I had then, I knew I'd have forever. And the fact is, I have them still. I do, I always will. We were raising our children together, side by side. Life was sweet, oh lucky us for living on that street. The original cast is produced and edited by me, Patrick Flynn. The original cast is on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Original Cast Pod. You can follow me, Patrick Flynn, on all platforms at Unknown Penguin. Enjoying yourself? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and tell the world. You can also find the original cast on Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, and wherever fine podcasts are available. My thanks to Michael Fink for coming and talking to me. I'm Patrick Flynn, and I can't. I have rehearsal. To 14 Dwight have Natick, Massachusetts, and the memories come hard as wood. There's Charlotte, my dear, dear Charlotte, making simmers for the whole disbelieving neighborhood. It's so damn good. Sophie's smiling and Shirley is laughing. Norma's blunt but never ever shrill. And I'm so damn lucky to have lived here. It's a crime we time to kill but I'm blessed by people who have lived here and I see them still we lived at 14 Dwight Ave Natick, Massachusetts in a small house on a slope. I'm going to go full disclosure here and say, folks, we recorded for like 20 minutes and then it failed. So we're starting over. Uh, <laughs> so if Michael and I are maybe a little punchy at the first, like the beginning here, that would be why. Um, and it's a shame because I was really brilliant for 20 minutes. It was really minutes, good. It was like a and song. And then yeah. I run out of steam after 20 minutes. So I, I can't pithy. make promises. I was witty. It was really, it was like Noel Coward meets Wallace Shawn.